Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 70 of the Leadership Window Podcast. Glad you're along. Happy summer. (laughs) I'm in Columbia, South Carolina, so uh, someone described it the other day online, the sweltering, humid heat here. I think they said, go, if you want to know what it's like, go take a super hot shower, get out of the shower, don't dry off, put your clothes on. That's what it's like in Columbia, South Carolina. But that's all right. I'm not complaining about the heat because I've lived in the north too, and I would take the heat over the summers. <laughs> I mean, over the winters any day. Uh, our guest today has been on before, and I loved the episode, and we promised a follow-up when her book came out, and here it is. And trust me, this one is going to be very interesting, very practical, very useful for the vast majority of those of you listening right now, Nike Anani is my guest. She is an international award-winning entrepreneur, a succession specialist, and a legacy planning expert for future-focused business families. And she's on a mission to help businesses move. I love this phrase. It's also the title of her book, Lifetime to Legacy. And uh, she is doing that such that they can build family enterprises of the future. Now, her focus is on family enterprises, but you're going to see in a minute how much of her work relates directly to really the entire nonprofit sector, maybe even any kind of business. She has over a decade of family enterprise expertise as a second generation owner herself and a family office pioneer. She's the host of The Connected Generation, also a top 10 podcast for family enterprises globally. She's co-founder of African Family Firms, a nonprofit community of family enterprises. And uh, if you want to, in fact, I would advise you either before or after you listen to this episode, go back and listen to episode 59. Nikkei was on the show and we really talked about how her work relates to um, the social sector. And um, Nikkei, if I recall, your path starts in, in Nigeria, it goes through the UK, you're now in Austin, Texas of all places. You've had quite the, <laughs> the world journey, but welcome to the show. So glad to have you back and catch people up on the book. I think we've got some really good new content as well for our listeners. Yes. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's awesome to be back. We had a really cracking conversation the last time. I remember um, the opener was, we're going to make this epic, and it was epic. And I'm sure <laughs> today's is going to be even more epic. Epic. Um, now, now I need to put some dramatic music behind this, uh, <laughs> make it really epic. Um, yes. the, the book is Lifetime to Legacy. just came out. It's on paperback. It's on Kindle. You can get it from Amazon or you can get it from, from your website, which we'll make sure is on the podcast page. But catch us up. Remind us what's happened since the book. Maybe, maybe remind yes. listeners a little bit about kind of who you are and what your firm does. And then tell us about the book and its audience. Indeed. I am a legacy planning expert, succession specialist. I help family business family business owners take their businesses from lifetime to legacy. Essentially, how can you build a business and wealth that would outlive the founder and have sustained impact over time and space to successfully transition to the next generation? And 
how I got into this space is it really is so intertwined with my personal story. Um, my family, I'm from Nigeria. I grew up there till I was nine. My parents started off um, our family enterprise the year I was born. So entrepreneurship has been around me all my life. At the age of nine, I moved to the UK and um, was there with my, my brothers and my mom and was very much far removed from it. And I started off my career in tax planning, very much on the technical side, serving large enterprises and families as well at Deloitte. But I found tax planning quite boring <laughs> and decided to move back to Nigeria. And that was my foray into the family enterprise space, working with my father as a second generation owner. And it was there that I just became so passionate about helping not only my family move from lifetime to legacy, but also working with others to move from lifetime to legacy. And like you mentioned, I moved to the US a year ago and I've been in Texas for over a year now. I'm really loving it. And my book just came out. So that's a, an overview of me. Yeah. Well, um, I've been excited about the book and it, it is an amazing book. It's just full of the way I would describe it for our listeners is that it's super, super easy to read but it hits on the heart as so many of the nerve point. I mean, it really mm. nailed, there's, there's no fluff in it. It really is down to the nitty gritty because what I like about what you've done, and we talked about this on uh, back when you were on the show before, is how succession planning is, while it is a thing and it's a big thing for a lot of organizations, there is something mm. bigger. And it really mm -hmm. is the whole mission, vision, and purpose of the business itself. And that comes before anything. And so the, uh, that's what I got. I think the thing I got the most out of our previous discussion was how we're really, it's not just about getting used to a new leader. It's mm. about making sure that the business transcends an individual. That's what I, that's what I really walked away from that last episode with. So I, I, I just so much appreciate that aspect of it. And you, you covered in the book, you know, you cover not only the transition stuff, but mission, vision, value. Let's talk about the business because that's what this mm -hmm. is all about. Indeed. Um, business is not just tactical business is purposeful mm. and we are emotional beings, right? As different stakeholders, we need to understand the bigger why. And really subscribe to that bigger why to really become committed emotionally to the why so we can give our best. Mm. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you this question. And I'm going to get your perspective on it. I certainly have one. Um, you're on this show because I see a connection between what you're doing and our listeners. This is a this I mean, this podcast is about leadership, but it's through a social sector lens. And mm. so I'd, I want to hear from you where you see the relevance you're working mm -hmm. with family businesses, very specifically, it's very niche, it's very purposeful. It's about enterprise and multi-generational, you know, handoffs. How do you relate the overlap or the relevance of your work to the nonprofit sector where there's organizations that aren't necessarily family-based, but it's about the long-term mission, vision of the organization and, and the leaders. Where do you see the biggest overlaps in what you do mm. in this sector? I think there's a lot of overlap with respect to being future focused. So creating an enterprise that continues to solve the problems and that is dynamic in itself. So not getting stuck on the here and now, 
So this distinction I mentioned in the book between transitioning and transforming, but really keeping your eye on the future and how are we ensuring that we're still solving the problems that are relevant tomorrow in the ways that will be in through the means and the mechanisms that will be prevalent tomorrow. There's that lens. There's also the lens through which um, all organizations deal with having this incumbent rock star at the top and he or she has to leave at some point. And then having this transitioning out of the leader and bringing up the next generation of leaders that will take over. And does that next generation have the expertise and experience? Does that next generation have the confidence? Does that next generation have the autonomy? Um, Because the older generation of leaders may be still having a hard time letting go still grabbing, still having a hard time letting go. Therefore, the new leader may have a hard time grabbing on. <laughs> um, how does the leadership of the family or the organization choose amongst potential upcoming successors, so to speak? These are all issues that are common, not only to family enterprises, but also to the nonprofit space. Yeah, I'm, 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 I always picture a relay race where you're literally handing off the baton. That's a metaphor we use a lot, you know, hand off the baton or pass the torch Mm -hmm. even, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think of a relay race and I think about that transition period from one runner to the next, they try to remain at full speed, but really during that, during that transition, that handoff, there's a little bit of a slowdown and then there's the go and sprint again. But when you just, what made me picture that just now is when you talked about if the, if the current runner has a hard time letting go of the baton, it's really hard, if not impossible for the next runner to take it and run with it. It's like, let go. (laughs) If I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't hold it out there, but still keep this tight grip on it, or you're never going to be able to take it and run with it. And that would be the metaphor, I guess, that comes to my mind. Indeed. And I, in the book, I talk about why it's so hard for the incumbent to let go. Yeah. Cause it's, our, our vocation is more than our vocation. It's usually an identity is also yep. typically wrapped up in what we do. Our tribes are wrapped up mm. in, you know, our place of work. Our status is wrapped up in this. And so if we can all come at this with some empathy to understand what the incumbent is going through, mm-hmm. we can help them transition through. Often, what's so difficult for um, the incumbent, why it's so difficult is because they don't know what they're running towards. They don't know why, why are they leaving this baton and what are they going towards? What's next for the incumbent? Um, And without a compelling vision of what's next, that will literally get them energized, get out of bed and, you know, eager to do so, they will tend to hold on to what they've known for the last 20, 30 years. And that's why it can be really hard for them to let go. Mm. Um, But I think, um, you know, and equally on the side of the the rising leader that's grabbing on, that's a lot of change. It's hard. It's hard to move from backstage, like I mentioned in the book, to the front stage. It's difficult. The lights are on on the front stage. The heat is real. <laughs> All eyes are on you. Um, but I think leaders and organizations can use this as a moment to design over this transition and this overlap in a very um, in a very elegant way where the incumbent gradually lets go, but is available to mentor and guide if need be. And quite often what we'll see is keeping the incumbent on some form of a retainer where they can still consult the upcoming leader. But I think quite often 
if that incumbent hasn't done the inner work to understand and identify what's next for me and is at peace with what's next for me, they may still um, be overarching, um, you know, um, micromanaging. So there's need for boards to think through what areas, what's the scope of this consulting? Where do we need Patrick to oversee NICA and provide assistance and guidance in? Really evaluating NICA's weaknesses and strengths based on her experiences, her expertise, her skill set, and whether it's one-on-one coaching sessions with the incumbent, you know, whether it's the incumbent is um, providing some kind of deliverable or reports to the board, gaining a lot more clarity than just having Patrick on a retainer. Seems like the culture of the organization and the relationships that are involved really have a lot to say about it because I've seen situations where the retainer sort of um, arrangement works really well. There's this continuity, Mm. you know, the board, for example, feels more comfortable because they know that they've still got the, that, um, um, historical continuity and wisdom and understanding at the table, you know, because that's what stresses boards out is, you know, Oh, what Mm. happens when Joe leaves? And so there's comfort there. On the other hand, I have seen some downsides to that. I've seen Mm. where the retainer, what doesn't shift you tell you tell me from your expertise it seems to me like what has to shift even in a retainer kind of arrangement is the autonomy and the authority even the unspoken kind of thing you know so that a new ceo doesn't feel like the the incumbent is staying too long or Mm. that they can't move and do their, they can't execute their own vision until the incumbent is out of the way, or they feel pressured to do what the incumbent is advising them to do when they may have a different perspective on it. So how do you strike the balance? I ask you a big question. You have to answer it. (laughs) You have to answer it in seven seconds. How do you, how do you strike the balance between that continuity, which is a great luxury if you can have it, but also a transition that is speedy enough that truly does let go of the baton so that the new CEO can, can run at their pace and with their vision. It's a, it's a real Mm. balancing act. It it is a true balancing act. And as I was kind of alluding to, one needs to think through in that retainer engagement, who is the incumbent reporting to during that transition period. And I think that there could be scope to for them to report to the board as opposed to reporting and working very closely with the um, the new CEO because of the issues around what you've mentioned, around autonomy, around agency, around confidence. But at the same time, one can look at having an executive coach for the new leader who is dealing with a lot of transition, dealing with a lot Someone of decisions. Someone who's not that the incumbent, to- you mean? I think a new perspective is needed. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not the incumbent, but you've got the um, institutional memory from the incumbent still being transmitted to the board where necessary. And then the board can decide where and how to use that. Uh, so th- you just opened up a door I had not even considered. And that is that the, the incumbent reports to the new CEO, not the board. Mm-hmm. 
do you do you recommend that versus reporting to the board? That's an interesting concept. I can I can see sort of pros and cons to that. Is that generally what you would recommend? Um, I think it depends on the situation. Like you've um, kind of alluded to, the benefit of the incumbent reporting to the new CEO is that the new CEO feels like they're in the decision making seat. I love that. Right. Right. Um, and but it depends on the matters that we're talking about right so what is the scope of this engagement what's the scope of this consulting work i find that when i've seen this it's very wide it's more it's been decided by the board like you said from a fear perspective we are scared that when patrick leaves everything is going to hit the fan Mm -hmm. and we don't want to leave him so we'll just keep him as a consultant but what is he consulting on and is he overreaching um, and overextending himself as an ex-ceo and so it's very important to understand the specific areas ideally strategic areas, ideally issues around transition, whether it's old relationships or old projects, maybe there's still the point of contact for that sensitive, sensitive projects. Um, But I think it's important to really get very clear on what are the details of this engagement rather than just we've solved that because Patrick is is on a retainer. And then Patrick still acts as the old CEO. Um, and now if we have the, the new CEO as a person that Patrick reports to, um, it changes the power dynamic, right? The new CEO can then make a decision on what to use with that information and can be empowered. And like I also recommended, I think having coaching in periods of transition is so important for that new CEO. I, I, this um, makes a lot with of a sense. Fresh pair of eyes, someone with a fresh pair of eyes that's not in the system. Um, yeah. 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 Well, it also makes sense that the board doesn't have two people to oversee and supervise in a way that that could open the door to triangulation and, you know, left hand, right hand, not knowing what the other, you know, it's, it's an interesting concept. I think that's um, mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating. How do you what are some ways that leaders or that you or a coach can help leaders navigate the emotional waters of letting go. Cause it really is an emotional thing. And I've, mm. I've experienced it myself walking away from one job to the next after really investing my heart and soul into what we built. Um, and I, I also coach a number of CEOs. Um, I've coached some who are, who engaged me simply because they are, they are retiring and want to figure out, how do I, how do I set the organization up? Mm. And so it does get really emotional. You do own it. Um, and so what are some of the ways that these leaders can help navigate these emotional waters of letting go and feel better about it and, mm. and, um, and just, you know, truly let go. Mm. As human beings, um, there's this concept in economics called loss aversion. Um, we are mm. aversion we are more heightened of what we stand to lose than what we stand to gain. And as a coach, I my role is to help folks reframe and rather than focus on what they stand to lose, look at what they stand to gain. So um, how can you see your season having served as a CEO of one that's positive, of one where you've contributed rather than you're losing out on, like I said, your tribe, your identity, your status, your um, your meaning. And secondly, I help folks to really distill um, with having self-compassion 
um, what is it that I'm scared of, of losing behind? Like we have frank conversations about the emotional stuff. I'm scared that I don't have anything to do in the morning. I'm scared that I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm invaluable. I don't have any worthiness because no one will be reaching out to me and calling me all the stakeholders. I wouldn't matter to them. I'm scared of whatever. And we itemize that. How else can you feel valuable in your new season? What can bring meaning and purpose and plug that gap in your new season? And like I mentioned in the introduction, I think this really speaks to um, finding a compelling enough purpose in your new season that will get you out of bed energized and enthused. So you're entering into a new act of life. Um, Retirement is a word that just has a very negative connotation emotionally for a lot of people. Um, how about what can you do in this new act of life is can you serve on a board can you start a foundation can you get involved in civic work can you start a business can you invest there's so many options available to you so let's not look at this through the lens of what you lose let's look at this through the lens of what you gain and and lastly I also um, and it's very applicable to individuals actually but what I talk to families about is Let's not focus on what you're losing, um, the fear of dad letting go, the fear of dad, um, the fear of us losing dad, actually, like when he passes away or, um, or dad when he has to hand over. Let's not focus on what you're losing. Let's focus on what we're creating. So let's focus on two things as a leader you're leaving. What legacy do you want to leave in the organization, right? And what legacy do you want to live going forward, right? You still have meaning, purpose, contribution. You're still, um, you're still worthy. Um, you still got years on you. You've still got a life to live. And what does that, what does a vibrant, meaningful life look like for you? Mm. And how can you make an impact on others in, in, in that season too? Wow. That is so good. And there, so there's an entire chapter in the book about the founder's challenge and this issue of letting go. So I want to encourage listeners to read that and get more, but I love that. And Nika, I love that you turned that around. It's not just helping the incumbent focus on gain rather than loss, but remember there's an entire team of employees, board members, stakeholders who are also going to feel a sense of loss. At, at least you hope that they, you know, that, that they uh, appreciate the, the outgoing CEO to that level, but um, help them focus on what there is to gain too. And, and you're mm-hmm. back to, I mean, you're really consistent with this concept of being future focused, because that's what this is. It's about being future focused and about gain. I, I love it. Um, let me, let me shift gears. I have several other elements of the book that really struck my attention that I want to get. And you referred to this briefly a moment ago this transformation Mm. versus transition. Mm. And I don't remember if we talked about this on the last episode or not, but it has come up on a number of my podcasts with other guests. And in particular, um, we had a guest on uh, Michael and Audrey Sahota, who um, their book is about evolutionary leadership. And Mm. they actually, uh, I think what they helped me figure out is between transformation and transition, mm. there's another term, and it's evolution. Hmm. And and they mentioned that the word transformation scares people because it's so big and it's so grand. And when when leaders come in and say well, we're going to make a transformational change, you know, and it's sort of announced, 
or when they're charged with transformation, that's such a big thing versus, mm. versus evolution. How does a company or a business evolve from, you know, the generation that's been leading it for however many years to, mm. you know, the, the, the big question of what's next. And so in your book, and I, I want to read a quote from your book, you say multi-generational success requires transformation, not transition. Transition, mm. and I love how you describe, uh, define them. Transitioning refers to the process of changing from one state or condition to another, whereas transforming refers to a marked change in form, nature, or appearance. Mm. And so um, uh, as I read that, what I picture is concentric circles where transition lives inside transformation. Mm-hmm. How do you, Mm -hmm. uh, how do you, um, how do you reconcile with this term evolution? Where do you find that comes in with your work? You know, it's really interesting you say that. And as you said that I had an aha, because in the next chapter, I talk about the common mistakes folks make in their journey in navigating their legacy journey. And one is to think that we need to pursue a revolution and not an evolution. And I talk about how, with a revolution, you've got sudden and dramatic changes. Um, but with an evolution, there's slow and gradual changes. And I believe that the, the irony is that as we pursue individual evolutions and as a family pursues collective evolutions, we move towards a transformation, not a transition. Mm. Wow, uh, that's powerful. I th- and, and as you're talking, I'm thinking about the different this may represent one of the big differences between a nonprofit organization and a for-profit enterprise, mm-hmm. particularly a privately held, um, you know, entrepreneurial kind of business. And that is one of, one of the things that is true about the social sector or the third sector or the voluntary sector, mm-hmm. or the nonprofit sector, there's lots of terms for the independent sector. S- speed is m- more difficult than Mm. it is in the business world. In the business world, because I totally control it. I mean, uh, I'll give you an example. I'm a solopreneur. I own my own coaching practice. Mm. I can do whatever I want as fast or as slow as I want. And I live or die by it. If it works Mm. out, great. If it doesn't, it's all on me. But I get to Mm. move at my own speed. When you have a board of directors Uh, in a community that is made up of volunteers who understand they're the governing body. When you have donors who have certain expectations of the business, when you have partners and stakeholders and community leaders that either support what you're doing, collaborate with you or not, the speed slows down because you've got to be more patient to make sure you're bringing critical mass along. It can implode quickly and, and fall apart because you, you are not in sole control. You are truly stewards of a community trust, not just a family trust. And so I think that might be one of the reasons I'm liking the word evolution. Mm. Now I love speed and I lament the fact that the nonprofit sector moves so excruciatingly slow on making change, but there's just some reality that comes along with that. Whereas in the business mm. sector, it seems like you can move faster. Is that a fair? I don't know. Is that a fair? I think it's a fair assessment. And I think it really speaks to you. You were mentioning the reason why we won't see as much speed in this social sector as they're more stakeholders to, car- stakeholders to carry along. And I speak about the importance of forming effective teams. Um, 
and you know really it speaks to surprise the importance of setting the tone what is the purpose of our teaming together understanding our respective strengths and roles and responsibilities and being able to communicate to different stakeholders based on the different touch points and hot buttons that are important to them so a ceo's objectives or what keeps him or her up at night is going to be very different from a regulator or from a grantee um, and understanding that it's important we have a big picture purpose but how does that purpose move from we to me how does that affect Patrick how does that affect Nikkei and how can we communicate in a language that they would each understand to rally them them along and influence them mm. so it's really an evolution rather than a revolution yeah hmm. well and uh, you know i bring my own bias to the table as well because of certain experiences i've had where i have tried to move faster than my board and it didn't mm. work it didn't work um and you know there's a there's a definition of leadership we i use a lot and um we, we i've mentioned it on the show a number of times it's marty linsky from uh uh some of the work that he's done with Ron Heifetz on adaptive leadership. And um, he's a, I think he was a, I don't know if he still is, but a professor of sociology at Kennedy School of Government, um, mm. Harvard, somewhere in there, but a best-selling author. And he, he defined leadership once as disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. <laughs> and it is about this change, right? Because change disappoints mm. people. You know, they, you're, you're constantly moving people out of what they've become used to and what they're comfortable with. But you have to do it at a rate they can absorb because if you try to do it too quickly, that's when it implodes. That's when people turn on you. That's when people give up or they, they disconnect. They say, I'm out. And I've seen boards do that. I've seen boards who love the idea of transformation but mm. don't like it when they start feeling it because it's really moving them too quickly out of a comfort zone. And they start fearing for their own um, PR brand in the mm. community as the bank president or the, you know, wh whoever. And uh, that dis that rate of absorption seems to be the real challenge between transformational leadership and evolutionary leaderships. It, may, mm. it might just depend on the rate of absorption for your stakeholders. Thinking mm, out, thinking mm. out loud. Mm. I think I need to pick up evolutionary leadership. <laughs> I want to read it. I'm very uh, intrigued. Well, go, go back to, um, let's see, episode 57 of our podcast. Okay. I will do that. And, um, their book is called leading beyond change. Mm. And it's a really good book, a really good book. And whether you agree with every tenant in it, it'll really provoke mm. your thinking. And it's got mm. great sort of uh, visual frameworks and things in it. So um, I've, I've been promoting that since they came on the show. Um, yeah, I, because I think it directly relates to the, to the work that you're doing as well. Let me, let me move to another area. Um, you talk about um, this, this uh, you talk about a show that you went to in the book, uh, mm -hmm. a Nigerian mm -hmm. musician, and mm -hmm. you went backstage after the show. And it, here's a quote from the book. You said, it dawned on me that while those who were working backstage were critical in ensuring the successful running of the show, they were not substitutable for those working on stage. Mm. 
And what a great, great metaphor for what I think a lot of organizations, a trap that a lot of organizations fall into where, you know, because I'm a good resource development director, therefore I will make a good CEO. Mm-hmm. Or because I'm a good chief administrative officer, therefore I deserve to be the next CEO. Mm-hmm. Roles have to be appropriate and we don't want to set people up for fail. So this idea of taking someone backstage who's a stage grip or a, a lights operator and saying, hey, we need you to play the lead role <laughs> in this, you know, that you're setting them up for failure. You're setting everybody up for a, for a fail. Um, here's my question for you in that. And you, this is a little bit of overlap into other chapters on the book where you talk about conversations. But how do you, how does a leader come to grips for themselves and for the people involved with the fact that they might not be next in line? I've seen a mm. lot of leaders who assume, hey, I should be next. I should get the shot. I've talked to a lot of disgruntled vice presidents and program directors who said they didn't even interview me. Right. They didn't mm. like they weren't interested. And I've been here for 10 years and, you know, I should have at least gotten a chance. Mm. How do you, um, m- you know, m- mitigate the toxicity of that by having the right conversations along the way? How do you reconcile communicating to this stage grip that, hey, you're, you know, you're probably not ready or you're probably not the next, you know, lead singer? I think it's a fantastic um, question. I think it really comes from setting the scene and the mindset and the emotions of all the stakeholders and how they fit towards the wider business. And really that we are a team. And I talk about this a lot in the, the, um, the chapter on collaboration, just because, you know, um, just because you're not the CEO or you're not the star lead doesn't mean you're not a member of the team. And that equally, we're all contributing to a higher purpose. And that is the most important thing is that we work together to win this game. And I think that's important. So when we're having a conversation over, is Patrick the CEO or is Nick the CEO? Nick is not really bothered because what is best for the mission of the organization? Nikkei, what that reminds me of, um, the audience can't see it, but you can see my ball cap, right? St. Louis Cardinals, big St. <laughs> Louis Cardinals fan. And I watch this all the time. Managers who have to have the difficult conversations with their, with their athletes, you know? So for example, um, when a pitcher is on the mound and it's in the eighth inning and that pitcher started the game and they want to finish the game and then maybe they're even still pitching well, But the manager is seeing, you know, the velocity is coming down just a little bit. We're moving into their next batter is a really powerful left-handed hitter that you're not the best with that. Let's get a fresh pitcher and let's go to the bullpen and let's get you a relief pitcher. And I've watched managers go to the mound and I've seen pitchers angry that they're getting Mm. pulled and telling the manager, no, I'm good. I'm still okay. I'm strong. I don't feel tired. I'm, my arm doesn't hurt, you know, and the manager still has to make that tough decision and say, you've done a great job. You've served the purpose we needed you to serve right now. Now it's time. Let's get the freshness. This is a team thing. Let's, you know, trust your, trust your bullpen. We got your back. They got your back. Let them come in and finish the great work you started. And those are the conversations they have to have, or, Hey, I'm not playing you at third base tonight because of such and such, or, 
you know, I need you to move from this position to that position. And so the, again, metaphors, but that, those are the conversations. It seems like in sports, it's, they, they have them more easily than we do. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. they just, they just say it plain, plain and simple. They're respectful, but they're, they are direct and here's what's going on. And I know you don't like it. And, and then they interview the athletes afterwards. And usually because they know how to, you know, they've been PR trained. They usually say, look, I trust the manager. He's made the decision. This is a team game. And, you know, exactly. but it's tough. And in business, we have a hard time having those come. We put them off because we don't like that conflict. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that team spirit um, needs to be ingrained in our mindset. And even with the manager to be bold enough to have these tough conversations. But these conversations can be had in a respectful manner, like you alluded to, but can impress upon the um, whomever you're talking to that this is the best outcome for the team. Mm. Now, can we find a better position for you? Maybe you're not, I'm not an American, so I'm learning about American football. Maybe you're not a quarterback, but you're whatever. <laughs> you need to be moved to a different position and that will be a better utility of your strengths and your experiences and your expertise. So really having a two-way conversation to find out what's best for the organization and what's best for you. Yeah, but when we talked about this in our previous episode, have those conversations earlier than you think you need them. Indeed. Um, um, let me, uh, here's another area that got my attention from the book, this idea of the generational perspectives. When we say generational in the family business, when I think generational, I think, you know, the, the son taking it from the father or the daughter taking it from, you know, but there's also this broader generational perspective where you talk about the baby boomers versus generation X versus millennials versus there is a culture and a perspective and an approach to life that each of these generations have, um, exceptions, notwithstanding there is a, there is a, a thing. And so you have a chapter in your book about this sort of clashing leadership perspectives and clashing generational perspectives. And what I thought of when I was reading, I don't think you mentioned this specifically, but again, thinking about the typical nonprofit, I'm mm. thinking about boards of directors, many of whom are boomers and generation X who um, have maybe a boomer CEO who's retiring. There's a lot of that in the sector right now. And they're excited even to replace that person or succeed that person with uh, a, a millennial, let's say. Mm. They're excited about that idea. But then when it happens, they forget they themselves as a board are still boomers. <laughs> and now they're managing a millennial who is leading them very differently than their mm. boomer CEO led them. So how do you mitigate that? Um, you know, I'm thinking, are they setting up millennial leaders to fail when, mm. when the board itself is not evolving generationally? Mm. Mm. I think we're back to the evolution, not revolution. And I think if we can just impress it in our minds and our hearts that, intergenerational collaboration, diversity of thought, we want it. We want it. Um, because there's something that the new millennial CEO is bringing to the table, but there's also something that the baby boomer board are bringing to the table. Because ultimately, when we think about our stakeholders, our stakeholders are not uniform. Um, our stakeholders are reflective, of, typically reflective of the wider population. We want as many perspectives um, that are brought to the bear so that we can resonate with our stakeholders and build 
the better quality ideas. Um, so I think we should, I didn't mention this in the book, but it really is a call for how can we celebrate differences in one another rather than be intimidated by it? Uh, because our differences, the differences in the team is the strength of the team. You said we want, we want intergenerational collaboration. We want we diversity of thought. We, do. we want to celebrate differences. And I think if you were to go to any of the board members of the organizations I've got in my head, they would all tell you, oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> we want that. But it has to be intentional. You have to create space for intergenerational collaboration. You have to invite diversity of thought. You have to be open to it. You have to carve out intentional space and action for it. And that's where I think we struggle in just in this whole diversity, equity and inclusion space, for example, mm. I don't know many people who aren't for diversity, equity and inclusion. Mm. I really don't know that many people, most people are all in, but they don't know what to do and they don't understand that those things and, and it, this intergenerational thing is as big a deal as the racial and ethnic differences Oh, yeah. um, you got to be intentional about it. And so how do you help, for example, your businesses get intentional about creating this intergenerational collaboration where it doesn't just upset the entire apple cart when the next generation of leadership takes over and they have a completely different perspective on mm. leadership and, and how businesses run and where they want to go with the business. Mm. I work on both sides to ask them questions on are there any voices that should be included as you're making decisions on very important matters is there someone that's left out of this conversation that you're making decisions for or about without with um and i also impress upon my clients the importance of unity not uniformity nikhil will not always have her way and it's fine <laughs> we're co-creating together and the outcome of the co-creation will always be stronger than that than just one solo view um it's a process again we're back to evolution not revolution because folks don't like change surprise surprise no one likes change we know that diversity inclusion and equity is great is better for businesses um but to make start to see power um to have to change the way things are being done folks need to be enlisted and enrolled into a better future from mm -hmm. doing so than their status quo and not everybody has the not everyone's a futurist no, not everyone can see the benefits and see how it directly impacts on them sometimes you have to join the dots for them and make it clearer uh, make a stronger case for it um mm. yeah wow Wow. Well, we could really go on and on. I had a couple of other questions that fortunately we've kind of covered in some of our other, other conversations. What else, what else would you say, what have we not talked about that's in the book that you think is really seminal to what the book is about and can help people with? Is there, are there any more sort of, if you were to pick out, you know, the, the, the two or three key tenets of what the book is mm. about and what it's trying to mm. do, what, what would that be that my questions haven't given you a chance to talk about yet? The book talks about the importance of having difficult conversations, um, conversations mm. around emotions as well, and how to foster psychological safety so that people 
can have those difficult conversations. So there's a whole chapter on psychological safety and the different kind of steps um, on how you can improve that. Um, and the book talks about purpose, as we've spoken about a billion times, but it also talks about how can you develop emotional proximity with those that you're working with? How can you start to develop deep empathy for those that you're working with to be able to communicate to them in a language that they will understand with practical exercises like empathy mapping, um, things that you can do to really understand the way Patrick, what Patrick may be scared of, aspiring towards seeing, hearing, so that you can communicate in that language that would really resonate with him. So we, in my leadership coaching, we focus on emotional intelligence a lot, and we do emotional intelligence assessments, and we based it on uh, Daniel Goleman's work on emotional intelligence and the quadrant of, you know, you just used a term, though, that I don't know that I, I was familiar with, mm. and it makes a lot of sense, and it resonates. I'm going to have to... Um, Meridane it in a little bit, but emotional proximity mm. and the idea that we don't just distance ourselves from who we are as people. It can't just all be about the mission and the process and the product and the, you know, the, the goals and the key performance indicate it has, it's about the people and we get done what we get done because what was it? Uh, Dwight, here, another definition of leadership, Dwight Eisenhower, um, is said that leadership is the art of getting people to do things you want done because they want to do it. <laughs> so exactly. it, just this understanding that, you know, everyone has their, we're all already motivated. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always, I've, I've said for years, leaders don't motivate. What mm -hmm. leaders do is understand the motive, the already existing motivations of those that they lead. And they help those people make the connections between their motivations and the work that needs to be done. And you can't do that without emotional intelligence and you can't do that without emotional proximity. Like you have mm -hmm. to put yourself in that space and get comfortable with it. And the, the other thing I'll say quickly is that emotional intelligence can be developed. Yeah. It, it can be taught. It can be worked on, but just sure. like inclusion, you have to, it has to be intentional. There has to be intentional sets of actions. And so the empathy mapping and thing that you're talking, things that you're talking about, resonates wholly with me and that I, I just don't, I want to just concur loudly that you, we can't do any of this stuff without that emotional piece. Mm, mm, for sure. I find that a lot of the time we think business is about systems, processes, procedures, and just getting the work done, but it's really about understanding people. How do we influence yeah. people? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Nikki, this has been so good. I, I might have even enjoyed this more than the first one. And that was... Yeah, uh, same here. That was <laughs> and that <great>. was epic. <laughs> it was epic. Oh, we'll have to come up with a new adjective for this one. Um, but thank you so much again for, for sharing your time, your expertise, your talent with the world. Um, just This is just rich. And these are all very practical things. I'm going to take some of them into some of the coaching that I do with some people when they're talking about transition and succession. I'm going to point them your way. Let me point um, our listeners your way, uh, NikkeAnani.com. And Nike, by the way, is spelled like like Nike, the, the, the mm -hmm. athletic wear, right? N-I-K-E-A-N-A-N-I. NikkeAnani.com slash book. And that's where you will find uh, her latest, her brand new uh, work, Lifetime to Legacy, 
And, of course, it's on paperback. It's on Kindle. It's available on Amazon as well. Um, visit her. L- learn about her work. And um, go back and listen to episode 59 uh, when Nikkei was on before. I think we overlapped a little bit of the conversation, but there's some, some great tenants on that one, too. Nikkei, thanks again. Lead on, folks. <laughs> <laughs>